Hi, I'm Elise Kennedy. Welcome to Jarden's Startup Tech Series, where we host entrepreneurs, venture funds, and technology companies on trends across the industry. Today, I've got the pleasure of being joined by AJ Prakash, the founder and CEO of Jobs Edutech Startup Entry Level. Thanks for joining us today, AJ. Thanks for having me, Elise. So this is a hot space, as we were just talking about earlier, the jobs platform. I cover Seek, so I'm relatively familiar with the growth in the HR market, but I feel as though this upskilling part is a trend that is going to be more prominent looking forward. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Tell us a bit more about Entry Level. Yeah, so Entry Level is an edutech startup, but we also fall in the recruitment category. We're sort of a blend between the two. But obviously, with any marketplace, you kind of have to work with one side first. So we focused on the candidate side and the reskilling side. And so the thesis here was that we needed to drive down the cost of education. Right now, like you have a spectrum of solutions anywhere from the left side, which is like the boot camps and the general assemblies and the, the universities that charge tens of thousands of dollars. And that's a solution to that particular problem. And then on the other side, you have like the free courses and then the really cheap alternatives like Udemy and Coursera and, and things like that. And so we were trying to figure out how you do something in between because what happens is on the left side, it prices out a lot of people, right? For example, in the emerging markets. And then on the other side, they don't have the structure and support that comes to education because education is not just content. It's like, why do you go to university? You go because you want the community aspect. There's accountability. Uh, for me, my parental pressure, of like, you know, failing exams and things like that. So there's all these other things that come into it. And so like, how do we simulate that? And so what we've done is we've automated cohorts. And so uh, with our reskilling programs, they're 30 to 60 days long. You get allocated a team of 30 people that you work with to produce an outcome. And these outcomes are generally the input for recruiters. So you actually build a bit of a portfolio. So uh, we see ourselves as sort of like the last mile education piece with that accountability layer added on top. So what that means is we actually get completion rates of around 25 to 40% uh, compared to like the big uh, MOOCs that have, you know, single digit completion rates. And then uh, you have the obviously high ticket price courses that have 70%. So we're in between. Uh, NPS is still ridiculously high. And then the unit economics makes a lot of sense for us. We did a cohort of 6,000 people last month and that was managed by... I guess like one fifth of a full-time equivalent person. And so like we're able to scale the cohorts from a unit economic standpoint and drive down the cost of education to like one to $2 per person. And so we can charge $5, you know, $10 or more and still make a fairly decent profit margin on that. And a lot of the work we're doing right now is in the emerging markets. So Africa, Asia, that's sort of the countries we make the best impact in at the moment. Fantastic. I'm curious to know and understand, do you follow through with where and how that education enables them to be able to be more employable? Yeah, so in a very light touch at the moment, as you can understand with the scale that we're sort of doing it at, it's not like a cohort of 30 people where we can Mm. like handhold each person, but we do surveys and things like that to understand like where people are where the outcomes are. And so right now, I think we're in a single digit percentage in terms of direct job allocation after the program. But the goal is to sort of have more mechanisms in place to do that scale. So we don't guarantee any jobs or anything like that. And I think Mm -hmm. it's a dangerous territory to play into. But uh, what we do is we help people with the rails to like help them get a job. So we help them build a portfolio. We give them job kits and things like that. And then we have like really amazing user stories of people who have like landed jobs afterwards using the portfolio and like having zero experience in that particular field, which is really cool to see all across the board, anywhere from US to Nigeria, we're seeing these stories. 
Yeah. And I'm curious to know, where do you get your content? Is that content that you create? Do you outsource that? How do you find it? So right now we build everything in-house, but in the future, we're going to be doing content partnerships and working with other companies to scale the content. I think what we've really figured out is the rails. So we're not too like focused on the content side of things at the moment. So now is the time where we'll start working with other content partners to scale up. But obviously in the zero to one and one to 10 phase of the startup, we're building everything in-house. Yeah. I'm curious to know, what's the revenue and pricing model? What does it cost to be able to do it? I think you mentioned a few fees there, but then also about the clip of the ticket if you know, you're an investor looking at your business. Yeah. So the actual financial model is a little bit interesting. So we do something called a commitment bond. And the reason why we do that is because a lot of companies say we charge you $10,000 because we need you to have skin in the game, right? And what I thought was like, if that really was the case, like, why wouldn't you return it afterwards, right? So um, <laughs> right. we did exactly that. We just said like, look, give us $100 and we'll keep it in escrow. If you finish the course, we'll refund you the full amount, right? And so that's a really interesting model because we still make a decent margin on that. We end up keeping 60 to 70% of bonds, not just from people not completing, but actually upselling them afterwards. So what happens is you finish the course and we say you can have your bond back or you can get these premium tier perks and we keep your bond. It's a lot easier psychologically to keep someone's money than ask them for money at the end of the course. And originally it was freemium where we charged them at the end, but mm. doing it this way ended up netting us way more profit. And so that's the current model. We charge anywhere from five to a hundred dollars for the commitment bonds. And that really depends on financial aid and their like economic circumstances. So the base price is $100, but there are people that can't afford that. So we discounted all the way up down to $5 at times. But now what we're finding is there's also a demographic who can't afford $5 for the education. And so we're trying to figure out ways to assist people in the zero to $5 range as well, which is why we're trying to drive that in the cost as much as possible. Super interesting. Two things on that. One, with the use in the funds, I envision that you'll be able to invest that and generate returns and scaling up on one side. Is that right? Correct. So we're not going to do that just yet because I think we're still, you know, we're doing tens of thousands. We're working our way to the six-figure mark for a particular program. So I think once we start to get to that point is when we'll start exploring uh, investing that capital and like using that working capital somewhere because it's locked mm. up for anywhere from, you know, four to eight weeks. And so, you know, there's something we can do with that for sure. Yeah, super interesting. And then my other question is around the number that you mentioned that at the end of the course, you might be able to on sell other products that you can retain that. Can you talk a bit more to perhaps how many you see go and do that? And then also around what are those other types of products that you're talking to? Yeah. So at the moment we're seeing, depends on the program, we're seeing anywhere from 20 to 40% of people will take the upsell. Generally it's, it's in lower amounts, so 20%. And I think we're still refining the perks and refining the way that we're improving that. So the goal for next year is to increase the number of people that do that. But obviously we do make a fairly decent margin on just people not finishing the program, right? Because our completion rates, regardless of how much you charge at this low cost, unfortunately, like it's still not enough where if they pay $10,000, they're more likely to finish it, right? And they get a lot more hand-holding. But as a lower cost, we still have at least 60% of people who just forfeit the bond. But the perk of forfeiting your bond is that you retain the content so you can do that at your own time. So like the NPS is still high there because people will still get to keep the content and do it at their own pace. And so at best case, you can graduate quickly and get your money back. And at worst case, you keep the content and do it at your own time. And so like it's a sort of win-win situation there. And so, yeah, that's sort of what the numbers are looking at. 
And then you mentioned your geographic footprint. Can you tap into where you are today and where the split is? Yeah. So right now I would say a huge split. I would say 30 to 40% is in Africa. Another 30 to 40% is in Asia and the rest is all across the globe. So we do very little work, I would say, in Australia and US, which to me is more exciting. I don't think many players are looking at Africa and Asia as much as we are, and we've made a lot of traction in that space already. And so we're just going to double down in those areas. Yeah. And talk to us about how you are reaching these customer sets. What's your go-to-market strategy? So our referral rate is super high. As soon as we finish a program, like for each person that comes through, I think we, on average, refer another two to three people into the program. And so like, so far, it's just been, we finish a program and we have a wait list already ready to go for the next program. But the other acquisition channels are paid acquisitions. So Facebook ads, TikTok ads, things like that. And our cost of acquisition is super low just because of the demographic that we're going after. Mm-hmm. Like the ads aren't super competitive in those areas. So we can acquire someone for at worst 50 cents, right? And so like, if you think about like how many people convert and all that kind of stuff, and then we end up charging at least $5, the unit economics still makes a lot of sense for us to acquire people at up to 50 cents, but we've seen as low as 15 cents at times. And that's sort of the goal that we're trying to reach. Yeah, unheard of. Those <laughs> rates in uh, the more mature markets. Let's uh, move on to the industry as a whole. Have you ever tried to size what your target market opportunity is, or even in the countries that you are today? And then, with that, how is that growing over the next few years? Do you expect it to be greater or the same steady state? Yes, yeah, so I think there's obviously like this the general statistics, which is like, you know, the $1.2 trillion edutech market, mm-hmm. but like that doesn't really mean anything. Break it down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I'd, I'd rather do it from like a ground up uh, perspective and like looking at other companies and what kind of market shares they have. So, you know, one of the first things I looked into was the LMS market, like learning mm-hmm. management systems. And the opportunity is very small there. Like as I started looking into it, like some of the biggest players, like think if they can teachable, mm-hmm. you know, they're making sub- 50 million, right? And this is like the absolute pinnacle where you could go with LMS. And so very quickly, I think LMS was just not the opportunity that was like the right one to go for. And then you sort of look at like um, the Coursera's of the world. And I think in 2020, they did like 290 million or something like that in revenue. So that's sort of where we want to move closer towards, which is the courses, which is the short-term opportunity, I think. So we could go up against them. But actually the way I see the biggest revenue potential and where the money is actually at from a ground up perspective. It's like, you look at Randstad and they, what, did $24 billion in, in 2020? Like that's where I think the pinnacle of opportunities in entire space is. It's not necessarily education, it's recruitment. And you might ask me about this a bit later, but basically where I see the, the future going is that education and recruitment will become one and the same thing. It's because yeah. like no one cares about the process. They care about the outcome, right? You don't go to gym because you want to work out, at least for most people. I don't go, <laughs> oh, well, I care about the outcome, right? I want to lose weight or like to gain muscles and things like that. And so what is the ultimate outcome for education? In most cases, is to get a better job or a new job or, or something like that. And so where I sort of see the future of the market is that recruitment and education will become one and the same. So for us, the biggest opportunity and from a market sizing perspective and from an opportunity perspective, like where we need to head to is, you know, stage one education, reskilling stage two is collect all that data because we'll have tens of thousands of people, if not millions of people going through the system of reskilling where we capture a lot of data on like how they interact with teams, how well they do on assessments, their portfolios, things like that. 
You no longer have this false narrative issue of like LinkedIn where people can put whatever they want. We have an objective source of truth. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we tackle the recruitment space. When I think about target market, I'm not really looking at the edge tech market and breaking it down. It's more that like who are the companies who are making the biggest revenue sources and where is that opportunity and where could we make a big disruption? And I think we could theoretically go up against Randstad. Like that's where I sort of see us going. Yeah. yeah, they're massive. And on that, we will ask about uh, the MA because I do know that they've grown a bit through those mechanisms. And I think that vision you have is like that we've seen with Seek. You know, they've moved from being online classified, invest in a number of startups now as well, and uh, going along that whole recruitment stage from start to finish. I'm curious, given your footprint across a few of the emerging markets, have you noticed differences when you are rolling out the different products? Yeah, there's huge differences, both from an economic standpoint and a cultural standpoint and various other factors, right? Just like the most obvious one from an economic standpoint, the propensity to spend money is there, but the appetite, like they won't be able to spend $100 or $1,000 in education. And so you need low cost alternatives for them, but their needs are underserved from a perspective of what they're given is here is an online course, do it at your own pace, right? And they need more handholding than that. But no one from, uh, you know, Australia, US, none of these, like, these companies are going to tackle them from like a, you know, here's a teacher, here's a 30 person classroom, like the economics doesn't make sense for them. And so you need very low cost alternatives that satisfy these needs. And I think that's why we've had really high NPS in those markets for the solution that we're giving. And I actually don't think that if we gave a similar solution to, you know, the general assembly crowd, we would actually stack up against them because they do very much like a hand-holding experience and you go to the classroom, you get to talk to mentors and things like that. We don't do that. And so I think if we stacked up the programs, it wouldn't make sense. But from like an economic standpoint and the target demographic that we're going for, like we found a niche that really makes sense for us. They have the appetite to spend money. They can't spend as much money. And then also like they're very underserved from an education standpoint because what they're given is not what they're looking for. And so I think that those are the big differences. So the big countries where sort of seeing that huge difference between say the US is Nigeria and and surrounding countries in Mm -hmm. East Africa. And then we're seeing in Asia, in particular India is a big market for us because we're seeing a lot more people looking for these solutions. And I think the last driving factor here is by 2030, we're going to have another billion internet users. And so I think the other issue that's been really interesting is that like, not only do we have to teach them how to do particular things in the skill set, but also like how to use the internet almost, right? Because their user experience is very different. The way that they use these tools are very different. Like some of them use mobile phone and pen and paper to do these particular courses, right? Or the internet connection is very intermediate. So like we need to design solutions for that demographic in a very different way, almost from a ground up perspective. So that's what's been really interesting about this entire thing. Mm. Yeah, we do take for granted the... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it was class that I did back in school, showing my age there. Let's think about the competitive landscape. Are you finding that you're running into other players or are there other companies doing similar to what you are? Yeah, so I think there's other people doing cohort-based education, like a lot of people, right? I mentioned them several times, but there's obviously the bootcamp style education providers that are out there. I think there's Maven in the States that is doing cohort-based education. To what I'm aware of, I don't know anyone who's trying to automate cohorts to the extent that we are. So I haven't seen another player coming in actually trying to make the cohort experience as automated and as quick as possible and as efficient mm. as possible. And I actually think that if you're trying to service a US demographic and Australian demographic, the 
user experience will suffer, right? If you try to do that too much, right? Which yeah. is why Maven still does, I think, live courses here and there. That's what they, people crave. People crave human connection, live courses, things like that. And so they're not going to be served by a solution like us. Well, not all of them, right? We still have mm-hmm. quite a few people from those demographics come in, but it's an unintended consequence of our platform. And so that's sort of where the competitive landscape is. It's the cohort-based education landscape. But eventually, as we scale, the goal is to obviously go up against the recruitment companies and you know some of the data collection companies around candidates and recruitments and talent pools and things like that. But obviously, one step at a time. Like we have about 40,000 students have gone through our programs at the moment. I still think that's a very insignificant amount for us to start tackling the talent pool perspective. So once we start getting to the millions of people, we can start tackling the next stage of the company. So that's sort of where we're at. Fantastic vision. And then within that, how do you differentiate yourself? Because to me, your revenue model seems quite unique. Is that right, that it's differentiated and or how are there other ways that you uh, differentiate to some of those peers? Yeah, I, I think the revenue model is an interesting one. I don't think it's the most defensible unique value proposition for us because I'm not going to say who, but I, I did send my pitch deck to someone and then a week later they started doing the same thing on their courses. Oh. Um, so I thought that was very coincidental. And so I don't think it's the most defensible thing, nor was it the initial selling point. I think it was a bit of a gimmick at the start just to see how it worked, but then it ended up being very good for us and slightly more lucrative than just asking for straight payment, which has mm. been really interesting. I think the biggest value proposition and the biggest point of differentiation for us is this whole like automated cohorts, right? And I think it's sometimes difficult to visualize, but I think it's just like, if you think about a classroom environment, what we've done is created a classroom environment for 6,000 people at a time. And there's still one teacher and that teacher or that teacher's assistant is only putting in about two hours a day for about six weeks. And so if you just think about how much time that is, it's 10 hours a week, you know, working week uh, times six to 60 hours to run a cohort of 6,000. But the kicker here is that we actually maintain the same NPS that you would get from a classroom, right? And also getting pretty similar completion rates. And so I think it's the fact that we've been able to take a classroom environment that typically costs anywhere from 1000 to $30,000 and deliver a very similar experience for, you know, a dollar or two. And yeah. so I think that's the real unique value proposition that we're sort of driving home at the moment. Absolutely. My mom's a school teacher, so <laughs> I can only envision her wanting to do 10 hours a week and that many students, as long as they don't reply, she'd be happy with that. I'm curious to know, you spoke about how you see that landscape evolving. Do you think, you know, there's just going to be a multitude of different players and it's more of a landscape of an oligopoly or do you think there's going to be one dominant player? And I'm curious as to how and why you think that landscape will evolve that way. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I saw that and sort of thought about it and where I sort of saw the market going. And I think it comes back down to the fact that like both companies and candidates and people in general have lost faith in institutional education providers to give them the outcome that they desire, which is a job. Back in the day, you do a university degree, you're almost guaranteed a job. That's how it worked. Nowadays, that's not the case. You do a degree and you have to work really, really hard to get a job at the end of it. The onus of like whose fault it is has moved from like the universities to the candidates and the students. It's not the students' fault for not putting enough time in industrial training and things like that. And I think what that's going to start signaling is once the companies and candidates lose faith in institutional providers, I think one trend will be that companies will start adopting educational procedures themselves, right? And we're seeing that more and more with Amazon and AWS working with Lambda School, for example. So more and more companies are going to start doing education themselves. 
there's also Zoho in India that's basically started their own university, right? And they're sponsoring students to go through it. And I think a third of their workforce comes from Zoho University. And so they're owning their own talent pipelines from an educational standpoint and from the very first touch point. So I think the transformation that's going to happen is I don't think it's going to become, you know, one winner takes all. But I think what's going to happen is there are going to be more and more companies that empower other companies to start owning that entire talent pool from start to finish. So now it's like a very competitive landscape. So everyone's trying to poach talent from each other, right? Because what happens is the supply is so small and the demand is outweighing it. For example, in data science and the engineering uh, design roles, like we're struggling to hire people because the, the salary expectations are ridiculously high now. And so what has to happen is companies have to start building their own supply. I think the market will become more fragmented. I think companies will become more and more involved with education. And I think recruitment and education will become more and more similar. So I think that's sort of what 2030 looks like in my head. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's what we hear a lot in the tech space is the need and the talent drain that's existing, especially post-COVID and the ability to get some of that skilled talent into Australia. So, yeah, anything that can help evolve that strategy, we're keen on. Let's tap into some of the economics. We have spoken a bit about, you know, your cost of acquisition. I'm also curious about that lifetime value. So, you mentioned some of the students are renewing some of the courses are you seeing you know that quite often can you give any numbers around you know lifetime value yeah so um i can't give you an exact number on lifetime value because we're still too early to (laughs) know what the end of the lifetime is just yet we haven't even gone through a single lifetime of a customer yet so i think we're still early stage there but Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is the lifetime of reskilling to get a new job is anywhere from six to 12 months at minimum, right? Yeah. Can take longer for some people, but if you're really dedicated, generally six to 12 months, you can reskill, do some projects and land a new job in a new field, which is the sort of sweet spot we're um, sort of tackling. So we're looking at uh, demographics such as like return to work moms and people you know, in a job for five, 10 years and looking for a drastic change. Like that's yeah. sort of where, where the sweet spot is. And so if that life cycle is six to 12 months, right now we do 30 to 60 day programs. And what we started doing is doing tracks like career tracks. So you have part one, part two, part three, part four, but we make them all somewhat self-contained. So you don't have to do all six. You could just do one. And I think that exploration phase is very important. Like for someone to dedicate their lives to nine months accelerator, right. Or nine months of a program. And they realize month one that they don't want to become a web developer. Like that's not okay. And I think that's a difficult Mm. choice to make. And so what we're doing is very like, granular programs, so six to nine months sort of series of programs where you could drop out any time. You could just do part one and just experience it, have that certificate, and you're good to go. And so we're seeing the upsell on um, the retention from, say, program one to program two. It's pretty good. I think we're getting 40 to 50% of people retaining for the next program. So that was a very um, basic experiment, I think, just to sort of see if it would work. So we're now seeing that it's starting to work. So we're looking to build out these six to nine months tracks that people can start subscribing to and do that. So uh, from a lifetime value perspective, like if it's $5 per program and they sort of take every single one, then uh, it's theoretically anywhere from 60 to you know $1,200 if they stay the year with us. So that's sort of the mm-hmm. typical timeframe. But mm-hmm. from a just a user journey perspective, like the way that I see this sort of going is that if you think about long-term learning and lifelong learning, it's every two to three years, which is the typical churn rate right now, which is very, very uh, short-lived, but Mm. it's reducing, right? And I think China is currently at 18 months or something like that for a typical churn from one job to another. 
And so realistically, if you think about that, they're almost revisiting us every one to two years, right? Mm -hmm. And then coming back for a new job and then reskilling into a new job. And then it just becomes a perpetual cycle. So that's sort of what we want to get into rather than you come with us for six months, get a job and then leave. It's more that you keep continually reskilling and doing new things and changing jobs very frequently, which is where I think the future will go. Mm, Fantastic. And then thinking about the next, say, 12 months, I know you've got big visions, which we like to hear, but what do you think are the key areas of focus for you? So um, there's three levers technically for growth for us, right? One is getting more students in programs. The second one is running programs more frequently. And then the third one is just having more selection of programs, right? So those are the three levers we can theoretically pull on. I think we've done a pretty good job of getting volume of students per program. Like on average, we get a two to 5,000 students per program per subject, right? And I think that's a pretty good amount. Like we're happy with that kind of volume. Obviously we'll look at increasing it, but I think the next step for us is just to horizontally expand the number of programs we have. We have three at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, The goal is to hit 30 next year. And then the other one is to get more frequent programs happening. The downtime from one program to another one is fairly long at this stage. It's anywhere from one to three months, right? And next year, the goal is to just have zero downtime. So we just run them every month. Fantastic. A lot to work on there. So thank you once again, AJ Prakash, founder and CEO of Jobs Edutech, startup entry level. We appreciate having you on the show. Thanks for having me.